This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 22, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Much of the thinking that formed the early pillars of socialism and conservatism are, at least in part, reactions to classical liberalism. So says Brian Doherty, author of Radicals for Capitalism. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Cato University, held in Rancho Bernardo, California. If you think about how we're all here right now, um, someone owns this property, we're going to presume they own it justly. Um, They decide to sell the service of lodging and hospitality. We all came here, you know, some of us flew on planes, some of us drove on cars. Uh, People were there along the way to to sell us the fuel it took to get here. Uh, We're all here because we want to be here. All of that is classical liberalism in action. Classical liberalism is the way the modern Western world works at its best. And, you know, Tom was alluding the other night, last night, to how how weird uh, hardcore classical liberalism seemed to most Americans 30 years ago. But it shouldn't feel weird, and we should not feel weird about it, because our philosophy is the philosophy that built the West. We, We are living at its best in a classical liberal world. There's a a great quote about this, which I learned from Mr. Tom Palmer in his uh, great book, Realizing Freedom, which I believe all of us got copies of, from the journalist, uh, what's his name? Fried Zakaria, yes, which I am going to to, uh, read you now, um, because I think it puts it very well. He said, classical liberalism, we are told, has passed from the scene. And indeed, we are told that. But if so, its epitaph will read as does Sir Christopher Wren's engraved on the monument at St. Paul's Cathedral. If you were searching for a monument to classical liberalism, just look around. This world we live in, as Zakaria said, is secular, it is scientific, it is democratic, it's middle class. Whether you like it or not, and we like it, it's a world made by liberalism. Over the last 200 years, liberalism, with its powerful ally, capitalism, has destroyed an order that has dominated human society for two millennia, the old order of authority, religion, custom, land, and king. And from its birthplace in Europe, liberalism spread to the US and is now busy remaking most of Asia. And all of that is a very, very good thing. Um, Now, some of the ideas uh, that fed into classical liberalism can be found in bits and pieces uh, throughout human history. Uh, In the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, you had kings who were understood not to be divine. There was an understood separation of uh, of religion and state. There was a priestly case. The king did not necessarily decide his own power. In classic Greek literature, there were wonderful dramas based on dramatizing the notion that there is a higher law beyond just the law that kings make. the Christian tradition intellectually has long had room for the notion of a natural law and natural rights tradition that recognizes discoverable rational standards for human behavior. It doesn't just all come, you know, laws. This notion that law is just something that lawmakers make, that's an alien concept, uh, really, in, in, in the Western tradition. Um, but, you know, it, it's something that we're dealing with now. But our tradition, uh, you know, is really what built the West, but it came to its flowering as, as not just a set of notions, but a coherent tradition in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries, and the United States became, I will argue, the greatest flowering of classical liberal ideas in government. And studying uh, intellectual history, because this is going to be a story I tell of, of a, a decay and a loss 
of a certain set of great ideas, but it's encouraging for those of us who actually are interested in changing the ideology of the world to see that it's changed before. It's changed for the worse, but at least that gives us evidence that indeed it can change. We've seen it change and we can change it back because what it is, what ideology is, of course, is the thoughts in individual minds. Individualism is one of the, the great uh, tenets of classical liberalism. And, and by doing things like we're doing this weekend, by trying to learn the ideas, the philosophies, the legal uh, notions of liberty and where it comes from, we, we are being that change in the world and we can go forward and make that change happen in others. There's an economics metaphor I like for this. It's like we look at the ideology of the world and we feel like it's a thing that we're faced with, just like when we look at prices. We feel like, oh, a price is something we're faced with. But if you study economics, you understand that prices are simultaneously a given that helps us make decisions and also something that changes based on the decisions we make. And the same is true of the ideology of a culture. So you should never look at it as a monolith that you have no way of changing. Um, and in a certain sense, uh, I would argue that the very notion of social and economic change is itself a legacy of classical liberalism. Uh, this belief in the power of ideas to affect political and social change, because classical liberalism was the force that broke apart all the ancient restrictions of privilege, inheritance, guild, and king, um, that, that had sort of kept the world trapped, and the world is as rich as it is because liberalism did manage to change that. It's not, of course, all about ideas. There are certain things happening in reality that help this change. I'm actually relying a bit in my understanding on this on Mr. Tom Palmer, uh, one of the great uh, scholars and educators about the classical liberal tradition. Uh, also in his book, Reclaiming Freedom, he wrote quite a bit about the historical context in which a lot of this uh, took root, the, the rise of a commercial class, uh, the extension of property ownership to a wider class. Most of this is happening in England, by the way, which is the, the root of these ideas. Um, Henry VIII uh, divided many large estates. Church land was dispossessed. A, a new class arose, a middle class, a commercial class, a trading class, a landowning class that wasn't just uh, an aristocratic landed gentry. And a new set of ideas arose to sort of su support and buttress uh, these new people and their new role in life. Um, and the, 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 one of the core ideas behind this was the notion that we could discover with our reason things about human nature that would tell us things about the nature of man's relation to the state. Uh, th this meta-idea, which I think makes, it, makes classical liberalism markable as a distinctive outgrowth of the general Western Enlightenment tradition, is that critical reason can be applied to human behavior. And what you get to when you think about that is the notion of individual liberty. And there are certain things that arise from that. Um, if you believe that people should have liberty, you tend to believe in tolerance, the notion that we let people think what they want. We let people believe what they want. We let people say what they want. And the notion of dissenters in England, dissenters from uh, the Anglican church, was, was one of the, the key uh, things in the world uh, that helped these ideas arise. If you believe in liberty, then you recognize property. You recognize property as the great engine of eliminating and managing social conflict over the things of the world. You, you can't be 
acting free in the world if you do not have a place to act free and things to act free with. Um, so if you have liberty and you have tolerance and you have property, uh, this also leads to another of the great notions of classical liberalism, free trade and free commerce. You let people work in the professions they want. You break apart these old guild restrictions. You let people trade with who they want, do with their property what they want. Free trade is, is not only in and of itself one of the great engines of cosmopolitanism, peace, other important elements of the classical liberal package. It's also a constituent part of liberty and autonomy writ large. You know, Adam Smith, of course, is one of the great leaders in spreading some of these ideas of free trade. Uh, liberal politicians actuated uh, these ideas in the 19th century with the Anti-Corn Law League, one of the great inspirational stories of ideological victory, uh, uh, which I recommend uh, you read up on. Uh, you start to understand that you know, those, those free trade arguments, when you root them in economics, seem like they're based on mere efficiency. But uh, in the original classical liberal tradition, though it understood the value in increasing wealth of free trade, it wasn't necessarily about efficiency. They tended to treat it as a moral principle. Free trade was a constituent part of liberty. Uh, Benjamin Constant, a great French uh, liberal of this tradition, uh, had a, a great quote about why it might be better to consider liberty in moral terms than merely utilitarian expedient terms. Uh, he once wrote, tell a man you have the right not to be put to death or despoiled, and you give him an entirely different sense of security than if you just tell him it's not useful that you should be arbitrarily put to death or despoiled right now. And I always like that. Um, so tolerance, property, free trade, all arise from liberty. The, the, this stuff is, is, is a tightly knit skein of ideas, and they're all great tools for peace, another of the great values of liberalism, which allows for richer, better human lives. Um, other political philosophies that I'll be discussing uh, tend to not be so conducive for peace because they tend to pit interests against one another. They tend to be ones of conflict. Socialism, as we'll discuss, tends to be something that tells you that you, in certain respects, have to serve the interests of others, or perhaps that other people are there to serve your interests by force. Classical liberalism, as my example at the start, I hope made clear, is everyone serving each other and making each other richer uh, by free choice. It's a, it's a philosophy that does not require conflict in a way that uh, most other philosophies do, including modern liberalism. Um, now, this love of liberty leads to some other principles or constitutive ideas about the classical liberal tradition. Uh, one of them is skepticism about power, coming with that as a desire to limit power in general and to set countervailing powers against each other to hopefully check themselves. You can see this idea actuated in the structure of the U.S. Constitution, which, as I said, is a, a remarkably classical liberal in its formation. Um, it also leads you to the idea that a healthy civil society, completely separate from government institutions entirely, is vital to a healthy culture and society. And another idea that arises from the privilege of privileging of liberty is the rule of law and equality before the law. Built into that is a practical idea of ending guild and monopoly privileges that locked people out of certain occupations. Now this embedding of the notions of liberty and free markets in this larger order of peace, tolerance, variety, and autonomy 
is very alive in people who call themselves libertarians today. It's less alive in people who call themselves liberals and people who call themselves conservatives, even though conservatives, uh, for reasons I'll get into shortly, do tend to carry the torch rhetorically for a lot of classical liberal beliefs because conservatism in the modern American sense arose mostly in an attempt to conserve things about the American tradition, and the American tradition is a classical liberal tradition. And in all this valorizing of liberty um, and, and those other ideas that arose from that, uh, what ended up happening overall is that society shifted from a society of status where you were locked into certain things in life because of how you were born, became a society of contract, a society that really allowed far more people to flourish, to get rich. Um, as the great 20th century classical liberal Ludwig von Mises said, the social order created by the philosophy of the Enlightenment, which is what he called liberalism, uh, was one of supremacy to the common man. And when you realize that, that sort of links us into socialism in an interesting way. Um, classical liberalism began to shift uh, generally from about 1880 to about 1940 uh, for reasons that I'm we'll get into in a minute, but as that started to happen, socialism arose um, as a sort of counter and rival to it, um, and obviously different in so many ways, but I would argue that socialism actually, uh, as modern libertarians from Milton Friedman to F.A. Hayek have recognized, the socialists were, in some senses, trying to do the same thing that the classical liberals were trying to do. They, they, they thought that they wanted to make a world that was better for more people. They thought they wanted to crack certain illegitimate privileges and powers in the market. The solution uh, that they chose is a completely wrong solution uh, for reasons I'll also get into shortly, but uh, um, if you realize that they arose historically from a time when classical liberalism had gone a great way uh, toward making more people richer. The socialists sort of thought that they could push that along by the power of the state. They, they were wrong in that. They, they didn't understand uh, the, sort of the full context of liberalism. Uh, but they meant well, or at least they meant something, uh, as, as we say. Um, uh, as an aside, I'll say that I think in the 20th century, I think maybe Ayn Rand might have known some things that Hayek and Friedman didn't know about people's motives. I think her novelist eye saw that not everyone means well, but I do, I do see in, in, in the uh, fight of ideas why the likes of Friedman and Hayek thought it best to assume that their enemies actually did mean well and uh, merely try to educate them. Um, where the socialists went wrong, uh, mostly, was misunderstanding th this last key element of the classical liberal tradition, uh, the idea that Adam Smith expressed in his wonderful metaphor of the invisible hand. Uh, modern libertarians use the language of Hayek more often, and we kind of highfalutingly call it spontaneous order. And this is the idea that workable, valuable, and wealth-generating orders can and do arise without any visible hand of control ordering the people and the institutions of the world according to a deliberate plan. The socialists misunderstood this and thought that they needed a deliberate plan uh, to make the world a better place. Um, they were mistaken in this, of course, and 
in that mistake, they were led to creating a, a world, uh, which I'm going to explain to you in a little bit, paraphrasing the words of uh, Benjamin Tucker, uh, one of my favorite 19th century uh, anarchists of the libertarian tradition. Tucker was one of these people who saw himself as a socialist in a way because he thought he was defending the same goals of the state socialists, which was demolishing privilege and making a better world for the common person. But uh, he understood that the socialist approach to this was, uh, was mistaken. Uh, and I, I really enjoy the way he kind of goes on and on about this. I, I'm going to tighten it a little bit, but it sort of hits you with the rhythms of exactly how wrong the socialists went. Um, uh, and he, he distinguished the bad socialism as state socialism. And said that state socialism is the doctrine that all the affairs of men should be managed by the government regardless of individual choice. Uh, Marx, who he considered the founder of state socialism, concluded that the only way to abolish the monopolies that were keeping the common man down was to centralize and consolidate all industrial and commercial interests, all productive and distributive agencies in one vast monopoly in the hands of the state. The government would then be the banker, the manufacturer, the farmer, the carrier, and the merchant, and then in these capacities must suffer no competition. Uh, this is me again here. I hope, as, as I say this, you sort of recognize a little bit of the world that we've ended up in right now. Uh, not, not, not quite to the point where they're banning all competition, but it's interesting to the extent that government is trying to do all of these things that, uh, that Tucker feared socialism would lead to. Uh, back to Tucker. To the, to the individual can belong only the products to be consumed, not the means of producing them. A man can own his clothes and his food, but not the sewing machine that makes his shirts or the spade which digs his potatoes. Society must seize the capital which belongs to it by the ballot if it can, by the revolution if it must. Every man will be a wage receiver and the state the only wage payer. Uh, and he summed up where this would all lead to then is... is uh, a state system of medicine by whose practitioners the sick must inevitably be treated. A state system of hygiene prescribing what all must and must not eat, drink, wear, and do. A state code of morals which will not content itself with punishing crime but will prohibit what the majority decide to be a vice. A state system of instruction which will do away with all private schools, academies, and colleges. And a state nursery in which all children must be brought up in common at the public expense. Uh, while luckily here in America, I, I don't think any of that has been monopolized by the state. I think we can recognize that the state has at least stuck its hands into all of that. And how did that happen? If, if as I said, America was, was founded on very classical liberal uh, principles, uh, which is, is very true. In fact, American historian Pauline Meyer uh, summed up after her diligent study of pretty much everything that every person in the founding era was reading, thinking, and saying, uh, she summed up that uh, the Declaration of Independence, which she treated as, as the key document summing up the spirit of the Americans of the late 18th uh, century, summarized succinctly ideas defended and explained at greater length by a long list of 17th century writers that included Milton, Algernon Sidney, and John Locke, 
who continued and developed that Whig tradition, Whig, as Tom told you last night, is sort of another name of the time for the liberal tradition. Uh, by the time of the revolution, these ideas had become, in their generalized form, captured by Jefferson in the Declaration, a political orthodoxy whose basic principles colonists could pick up from sermons, from newspapers, or even from school books, without ever having to actually read a systematic work of political theory. That, that's a great summation, by the way, of the, the, the task that faces those of us who want to turn the world back in a classical liberal direction, this notion that we have to make these ideas so popular and so widespread that they just become the thing that everyone thinks. And I will say, as someone who has been in this business for a lot of years, a few years, uh, that we have enormously gotten further to that goal than we were when I started in this business, which, which is another encouraging thing to consider. But that's where we began in America, and we've ended up here. And uh, you know, how did that happen? The, 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 the degeneration of classical liberalism, which survives as what we now call libertarianism into what is now called liberalism, um, is one of the most interesting conundrums of political and ideological history. I, I do not feel like I've ever seen one convincing answer. What I'm going to present to you is sort of a set of answers, none of which are meant to be singular, but sort of a discussion of some of the trends going on from the 1880s to the 1940s, most of them derived from other modern classical liberal libertarian thinkers about why this might have happened. A great book to study this if you want to see it from the beginnings, a book written in 1887 by a uh, sort of Herbert Spencer disciple named Bruce Smith called Liberty and Liberalism, is a marvelous book to read if you want to see someone who is watching it happen around him, getting really upset about it. And uh, one of his theories was that people looked around at the legacy of real liberalism over the course of the 19th and 18th century, the average working man, and they saw, hey, Liberal reforms have benefited me. They've made my life better. My, my corn is cheaper. I can you know, work in more occupations. Everything's better for me. So liberalism is about making things better for me. And so uh, the, the Regnan ideas in, 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 uh, in British first and then later uh, American politics became the notion that government was not just there to make things better by getting out of the way, which had been the trend for the last couple of centuries, but it should make things better by actively trying to do things. Um, on the more philosophical level, utilitarianism uh, became far more in vogue in the second half of the 19th, first half of the 20th century. Uh, George Smith, a great scholar of liberalism and a teacher to me and, and, and to Tom, uh, sort of posits that the, the French Revolution is a little bit to blame for this, that the French Revolution was seen by many people as kind of the scary place we're taking this whole right to revolution, a Lockean thing, uh, natural rights, uh, taking it a little too far, and it scared people. Um, and uh, you know, if, if you're thinking in utilitarian terms, that can lead to a little bit of this sort of scientific hubris. If you figure, okay, it's about making the world a better place, and we smart people can figure out how to make the world a better place, and we can actively shape the world to make things better for people. Again, that's missing the insight of the spontaneous order, and uh, it, it, it gives far more, uh, far more room for control of people's lives than is actually warranted by its own successes. Um, uh, again, on the philosophical level, empiricism got more into vogue, and this whole notion of natural rights started to seem 
after Gen Jeremy Bentham as like, oh, this is just a silly superstition. It's a, I can't touch a right, you know, what, what right? We don't have any rights. Um, the middle class, uh, which of course was one of the great pushers and benefiters of classical liberalism, uh, had become more entrenched and possibly lost a little bit of their radical edge uh, that they had. Um, in the American context, I've seen some convincing arguments that uh, Protestant pietism uh, became a bit of a problem. You had all these very good, fine Christian people with a sterling do-gooder sense that they were going to reform the world and make it a better place, and they were going to use government as a tool to do that, and this really fed a lot into progressivism in the uh, American context. Um, by the time World War I came around, uh, it was almost over for liberalism in the classic sense. The war itself uh, sort of obviously led to a great deal of wartime centralization, most of which, a lot of which we've never backed down from uh, ever since. It created an enormous sense of cynicism about the world before it, and classical liberalism was a part of that world. So a lot of people just after World War I wanted to wipe their hands of everything that was both good and bad about 19th century liberalism. So in this 1880 to 1940 period, you saw liberalism being attacked, real liberalism, on all sides. You had nationalists and imperialists condemning it for, for essentially being too peaceful. You had socialists attacking it for supporting the, the so-called anarchy of free markets instead of the science of central planning. Uh, church leaders were attacking it because it was too materialistic and egoistic. Um, and uh, Liberalism, of course, had, had been such a great thing for Western culture that for various reasons in the West, these opponents of it never bothered to openly adopt a new term. They just sort of kept calling themselves liberals. They hijacked the term, and they kept it. Um, and uh, Dan Klein, a, an economist in the libertarian tradition, is leading a movement now to try to reclaim it. I, I think it's way too late for that, but uh, it's, you know, it, it's always a good argument starter, at least, if you remind people that you're the real liberal, if they care. Most of them probably don't care. Um, so then, uh, of course, the, the Great Depression and World War II kind of cemented in people's minds in America the idea that the free market didn't work. There's so much history behind that, I can't even get into it, but certainly there are convincing explanations from the free market side that it, it's not accurate to blame the free market and the Great Depression. Then there's World War II, which increased uh, war centralization, and, and by that time, no one, we're in the situation that Tom alluded to last night, where if you believed any of this stuff that everyone believed 100 years earlier, you're a complete lunatic. And luckily for us, there were a handful of these complete lunatics who, uh, who didn't give up on these ideas. Uh, you know, great heroines like Ayn Rand, Rose Wilder Lane, Isabel Patterson, heroes like Leonard Reed, uh, founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. And uh, so there were a few people out there who sort of saw the New Deal for what it was, uh, saw the, the, the bad side of, of World War II and, and wartime centralization. And they tried to keep alive uh, the liberal tradition. And conservatism uh, arose out of the same ferment. I would argue in the same way that socialism was sort of a, a reaction to, uh, to classical liberalism, uh, conservatism and modern libertarianism were both a reaction to modern liberalism. And if you study the 40s and 50s history of, of this anti-New Deal movement, which I did for my book Radicals for Capitalism, in those early days, uh, the people involved in it didn't necessarily have 
a sense of a distinction. If you read them in the 40s and 50s, people who we now would look back on as, oh, they were conservative right-wingers, and oh, they were libertarian, sort of saw themselves as part of the same movement. But, but things did arise to distinguish them. And uh, certainly, as I said, conservatism at its best was trying to conserve something it believed was great about the American founding. And if you're doing that, you're gonna have a very big classical liberal libertarian streak. And uh, many of the early conservatives and many current conservatives did. Uh, but it, they didn't, they didn't carry these ideas in as pure a form as, or as coherent a form as the classical liberals and the libertarians did. They had sort of wound around their libertarianism both a great sense of traditionalism, uh, sometimes rooted in Christianity, um, which led them to believe in state power over, over certain morals and mores uh, that a libertarian or classical liberal might not recognize. Uh, in the historical context in which they arose, they also had a strong dedication to a militaristic anti-communism that left not as much room as a libertarian would like for either a small state at all or for the classical liberal value of peace. Um, in, in sort of practical political reality, of course, we, we all recognize, uh, or probably we all recognize, that a lot of people who call themselves conservatives uh, are, are putting that libertarian streak to the fore. And I think they're encouraging signs, especially in the age of the Tea Party, uh, that that could become more and more true. I think uh, the general sense, even on the part of people who maybe, you know, as I was alluding to early, people who have never read a work of systematic philosophy since the bailouts, I think, upon what you might call the rank and file of people who consider themselves right-wing or conservative, uh, there, there is a streak uh, of anti-government feeling that is stronger than it was 30 years ago. I mean, interestingly, in the 70s and 80s, it was easy to find people who were anti-tax, right? I mean, no one likes to be taxed. I feel like now you're actually even finding people who have gone to being anti-spending, and maybe they're not anti-spending on the things that benefit them. That's the problem with not studying systematic philosophy. But uh, I, I, I do think that conservatism as an ally of libertarianism, especially as some of the issues that sort of have separated us, their, their, their dislike of certain bits of cosmopolitan variety in life, whether it has to do with immigration or gay rights or drugs, um, just demographically, I think we're seeing that change. Immigration maybe a little less than the other two, but um, the, culturally the culturally conservative aspect of conservatism seems inevitably on the way out, which perhaps will just leave them with that core of libertarianism. I mean, if you look at it, the, the ideas that actually animated conservatism in a political sense from Goldwater to Reagan were the free market libertarian side. Like, that was the interesting stuff. The only actual ideas conservatives had were libertarian ideas, deregulation, tax cuts. Um, e even, I would, you could argue, the way Reagan managed to wind down the Cold War, you might argue, with the specific techniques. But he, he actually did have a vision of peace, uh, which he, he managed uh, to achieve. Um, whereas the socialists, uh, to get back to libertarians, other enemies these days, uh, 
hardly anyone calls themselves socialist anymore. I would say that people who have what I would recognize as a strong socialist streak tend to call themselves progressives uh, or, or leftists. If you live in sort of the world where you hear these people talk, and I hope a lot of you don't, but you know, I, I do, and uh, you, you will notice really recently, like just in the last maybe even six to 12 months, the, the level of attack aimed from these people, who I'll just call them socialists, even because they are really, um, uh, is, is so enormous. Uh, and their recognition, in the same way that Benjamin Tucker recognized in the 19th century that his free market anarchism was the rival of the Marxists for sort of the same audience. It's like, we're, we're, we're going for this goal of a freer, richer world where the little guy is not oppressed. Uh, Tucker saw that his free market anarchism was the great enemy of the Marxists, and I think the Marxists recognize that as well. I think nowadays the progressive socialists are also recognizing that libertarians are their greatest enemy for, for their audience. There are so many things, they, they end up so embedded in modern electoral politics in a way that lots of libertarians don't, that, that they end up sort of handmaidens to the Democratic Party in many cases, and they realize that certain values that they're supposed to stand for, there's you know, civil libertarian values, uh, you know, not destroying the lives of poor innocent people because of the picayune enforcement of idiotic laws, uh, the likes of those. That the libertarian message is, is actually super appealing to an audience who wants a richer, freer, you know, groovier, whatever you want to call it, world. And, and they know this, and they're scared, and you can, you can see that fear. And, uh, and it's right uh, that they are scared. I, I think, uh, as I alluded to some of the facts of reality that helped shape classical liberalism, uh, larger socioeconomic forces, I think we're seeing a lot of that in the, the digital techno age that we live in, our ability to manage our lives, to communicate, to accomplish goals without requiring a state action, I think is becoming more and more manifest to more and more people. Um, this, this doesn't mean that we're on the edge of victory, though I think we should be. Um, the, the, the biggest problem, of course, is I think one that Leonard Reed recognized when he started the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, to the extent that we do believe that everyone kind of means well and you know wants people to be rich and wants people to be free, uh, the problem is that the modern liberal, modern socialist, even in some cases modern conservative, looks at the world and sees problems. Maybe that problem is, oh, there's people crossing over the border, or maybe that problem is I see poverty that I don't like, or maybe that problem is I see pollution I don't like, and they, they think that a government forceful solution is needed. Um, modern libertarians and carrying out the classical liberal tradition of tolerance, liberty, and peace have, have, I think, improved and tightened and honed and made more sophisticated the arguments that indicate to a person of goodwill that maybe that's not true. And that if you actually are a person of goodwill enough to not actively want a forceful solution, and I do sometimes wonder about that with some of them, but let's presume that they don't want a forceful solution, that the education in how a world can work uh, to make all of us richer, freer, happier, to the greatest extent that our own choices allow, 
Um, it's been a 400 plus year project. It's clearly not over yet. Um, but I do think we're living in, in a technological age that makes a lot of those things easier and a lot of those ideas, especially the idea of spontaneous order, the idea of how things, can't, things services, goods, ways of thought can and do arise without a boss imposing it makes me optimistic. Because no matter how much the actions of the modern megastate from the late 19th century to now have violated the great principles of liberalism, have stepped beyond a proper respect for peace, for free trade, for allowing humans to make their own autonomous choices in life. However bad it's gotten, uh, I do want to end by reminding you where I began, that these classical liberal slash libertarian ideas have shaped the modern world, this room we're in, what we're doing here this week in core and vital ways. And, and, and the, the quest to perfect these ideas continues to hold a powerful pull on the human spirit. Why else would you all be listening to me talk at you about this stuff for 40 minutes after a great dinner? Um, and uh, I'm going to close with a great quote uh, by Friedrich Hayek that has always, since I encountered it when I was 17, sort of summed up what I think the best way to actuate keeping the spirit of classical liberalism dominant over its opponents, uh, socialism and conservatism. Uh, he wrote in his essay, The Intellectuals and Socialism, what we lack is a liberal utopia, a program which is neither a mere defense of things as they are, it's not conservative, um, nor a deluded kind of socialism, but a truly liberal radicalism which does not spare the susceptibilities of the mighty including the trade unions, Hayek said as an aside, which is not too severely practical and which does not confine itself to what seems today as politically possible. We need intellectual leaders who are willing to work for an ideal, however small may be the prospects of its early realization. They must be men and women who are willing to stick to principles and to fight for their full realization, however remote. The practical compromises they must leave to the politicians. Brian Doherty is author of Radicals for Capitalism. Subscribe to this and other podcasts at our website, cato.org.